0: form to be signed upon termination. 5. Schedule a time early in the week to carry out the termination. Do not do it just before the weekend. You need time to communicate to the remaining employees why this is happening and what it means to them. If they don't understand, they may fear they are going to be next in line and morale may drop. 6. When conducting the termination, you should be direct and truthful. Don't try to make the terminated employee feel good. That's not helpful, and it will just confuse him. If you like this person so much, why are you firing him? You need to explain exactly why you made this decision and give him advice so that he doesn't make the same mistakes again. This is how you can help. 7. When explaining, focus on specific behavior. The terminated employee needs to understand exactly what he did that led to this decision. 8. Keep it short. Don't drag out the termination. That can get messy. 9. Take the time to answer any questions the terminated employee may have. 10. Don't waffle. If the terminated employee begs you for another chance, you cannot capitulate. You need to stick with your plan. You are firing this person for a good reason, which means you've tried everything you could to make it right. Now it's too late. Aborting the termination process will only cause more problems and create confusion. 11. Ask the terminated employee to pack up and leave on the same day. Remember, you cannot stop this person from communicating with other team members. People talk. But you need the terminated employee out of the office early in the day so you have time to get everyone together and message them on why the firing took place. 12. If you planned in advance, you will have already scheduled an all-team meeting for the afternoon. When everyone is together, you need to explain what happened and why. Don't badmouth the terminated employee. That doesn't help. Be fair, honest, and compassionate. Answer any questions, and then send everyone back to work. That's how to handle it. If you follow these steps, you'll actually find it's not so bad, and your team will wind up even stronger. As long as you are making the right decision for the company and not doing it for personal reasons, your remaining employees should understand and respect you for it. 73. The 22 Rules of Selling Now it's time to explore the art of selling. You cannot scale a business without knowing how to sell. Selling lies at the heart of every startup, and the CEO is always the number one deal maker you need to bring home the bacon. When I started out, I never considered myself a salesperson. In fact, I hated sales. I didn't understand how to do it, and I was awful. But as the CEO of several startups, I was forced to sell. I had to sell everything. I sold my vision to early employees in order to bring them on board for equity and not cash. I sold my products to our first customers. I sold the shares in my company to investors. And I sold our story to the press. Here's what I learned in the process. 1. Create a 360-degree model of your customers so you know exactly whom you're targeting. When someone walks in your door, you should be able to recognize instantly if that person is likely to buy or not. The more detailed your customer profile, the better. 2. Know your product inside and out. I don't care if you're not an engineer. You need to understand the technical details of your product. You need to understand exactly how it works so you can intelligently answer any reasonable questions. Spend time with your team so that you fully grasp how everything fits together. What technology stack are your engineers using? What problems are you solving for your customers? What functionality does your product offer that competitors don't? What's on the product roadmap? If you can't answer these questions correctly, you'll wind up causing a lot of problems by selling something that isn't quite the right fit. I've seen this happen. The CEO should not make any promises to customers without knowing what can actually be delivered in a reasonable time frame. The best salespeople I know understand their products right down to the smallest minutiae. That's why they close deals no one else can. 3. It's not enough to have a great product. You need to know what the other side of the table wants out of the deal. Whenever you're selling, there's what you want and what the other party wants. If you don't understand their needs, you'll wind up emphasizing the wrong things. The key to selling is making sure that all parties win, especially when doing large strategic sales. What are the people you're selling to interested in? Are they looking to fix a problem, gain a technological edge, impress upper management? or save money, or do they have some other motivation for closing this deal, like earning a commission? You need to know this right up front, or it's like trying to run blindfolded. 4. Identify the decision maker early. You may be talking to someone who actually has no power to close a deal. I've seen startups waste a lot of time talking to the wrong people inside an organization, only to discover much later that there was never a deal to be had. 5. To make a strategic sale into a large organization, it helps to have a champion. This person believes in your product, understands its value, and will go out on a limb to get the deal finalized. Without an inside champion, most enterprise sales hit a snag along the way and wind up in limbo land. To avoid this fate, figure out who is going to be your hero, and then work as partners to push the deal through. 6 sales isn't about talking. It's about asking the right questions. You cannot figure any of this out if you're just blabbing away about your product. You need to step back and listen to what your customers are saying. This is far more important than getting through your sales pitch. The more you understand about your customers and their needs, the faster you'll be able to move the process forward. 7. The best salespeople I know aren't focused on the money. They don't see it as their job to extract as much cash as possible out of their customers. Instead, they truly want to help their customers come to the right decision. They take the time to figure out what's best for the customer, and if a sale isn't a good fit, they will tell the customer not to move forward. This may sound counterintuitive, but over the long run, it builds trust, and nothing is more powerful than a relationship built on trust. If you make a point of always doing what's in your customer's best interest, even if it means less short-term profits, the customer will stick with you. 8. Selling is not about giving the same sales pitch over and over. It's a creative process. It's about learning and understanding what works for different customers in different situations. Whenever you give a pitch, you should be paying attention to the customer's reaction and adapting your presentation to their needs. The top salespeople are constantly iterating on their pitch, trying new things, and seeing what works. Remember, no matter how good you think you are, you can do better. 9. Don't be too aggressive. No one likes overeager salespeople. Chill. Try leaning back and talking to your customers in a relaxed manner. Let them come to you. Don't force what you want on them. 10. You've heard of the fast-talking salesman, It's not a compliment. Don't speak too quickly. Slow down and make sure the customer understands you. How you communicate is as important as what you say. 11. You can say whatever you like, but what really matters is the data. Can you back up your claims with solid evidence? Do you have proof that what you're saying is actually the case? A great salesperson takes the time to gather all the data possible and uses it as the foundation of any sales pitch. If your solution is cheaper, faster, more efficient, and easier to use, then you'd better have the numbers to back this up. Otherwise, you're just blowing hot air. 12. If a customer wants something, like a product feature, that your company doesn't offer, don't promise it without first consulting your team. This will just get you in trouble. Instead, take note of what the customer wants and say you'll talk to the team about adding it to the product roadmap. You don't have to give a specific date. Just acknowledging what the customer wants is usually enough. Later, you can get together with your team and figure out if it's worth implementing. 13. Rejection is part of the process. If you do sales, you'll invariably get rejected. Don't try to avoid getting turned down. This only leads to increased stress, anxiety, and depression. The way to become immune to this ego-crushing process is to embrace it. Make it a learning opportunity. Each time you get turned down, ask the customers to explain to you in detail why they can't move forward. If you take this approach, you'll soon find that rejection doesn't hurt so much. It's actually part of the process of extracting valuable information. 14. Don't attempt to change a customer's core beliefs. It's not that it's impossible. You can do it. It's just not worth your time. If someone believes that small cars are unsafe... Trying to convert them into a small car lover is going to take a huge amount of effort. Instead of wasting your time, it's far more efficient to sell that person a large car. After all, that's what the person wants. If you don't have any large cars to sell, send the person to someone who does. You'll lose this sale, but can spend your time with more promising prospects. 15. Make your sales tangible. If you want to sell a product, let customers touch it. If they can't touch it, show it to them some other way. Use videos, PowerPoint presentations, drawings, or whatever you can to make the product come alive. Showing is far more powerful than explaining. 16. Great salespeople don't just sell what they have today. They sell the future. Create a timeline that visualizes where your company and products are headed. Explain to customers that if they buy into your solution now, they'll receive far more value down the road than going with competitors. 17. Qualify your leads. Make sure that the customer is ready to buy. No point in wasting time with someone who isn't prepared to move forward. Even before you meet, you should know the probability of closing. If it's low, focus on other prospects. 18. Many companies have an entire process for lead generation and filtering. The idea is to ask a lot of questions in advance. Sometimes this is done through an online survey. Other times, through a email, or live rep. Once you have the data, you need to quickly sort prospects into categories by likelihood of closing, and then prioritize the ones most likely to buy today. 19. Know your bottom line. If you are negotiating a large deal, it pays to know going into the deal what you can and cannot accept. In advance, you should get together with your team and decide what you really need out of this deal and what you cannot commit to. You don't have to communicate these to the other party up front, but everyone on your team should be on board so you can structure the deal in the right way. 20. If a deal isn't working out, let it go. Don't chase after a lost cause. It doesn't matter if you invested several months into closing this deal. If it's not moving forward, push it off your plate. Sinking more time into a zombie deal seldom pays off. It may make you feel better to keep it alive, but it's just sucking up mental energy and resources. Better to put a bullet in its head. 21. Set up a sales pipeline. You can use sophisticated CRM tools or a simple shared spreadsheet. The point is to list out your pending deals and prioritize them by key criteria, like their dollar value, strategic importance, long-term potential, estimated closing date, and so on. This will help you prioritize the deals that matter the most and track everything. 22. Last, you'll find that a small number of deals usually wind up bringing in the majority of the dollars. This is especially true for large strategic sales. Focus 90% of your energy on the transformative deals. These are deals that have the potential to advance your business to the next level. For example, if there are 100 possible deals in your sales pipeline, Sort them by probability of closing and overall impact on your business. If one deal will have two times the impact of all the others combined, you should prioritize this far above everything. In other words, don't give every deal equal time. If you follow these 22 rules, you'll be far ahead of most salespeople I know. 74. Presenting in public. As a CEO, You'll have to present in public. It's almost impossible to avoid doing this. It's an essential part of growing your business. Even if you're painfully shy, as I used to be, you'll have to force yourself into the limelight and represent your company. For me, this began when I launched my first venture-funded startup. Initially, I had to pitch investors. Then, I was invited to speak at events. Next came the TV interviews, radio shows, videos, and so on. I was awful at first. I remember hearing the quaver in my voice. I couldn't control it, and that only made me more nervous. How did I overcome this? I simply persevered. I forced myself to take every opportunity to speak because I knew that was the only way to get over my anxiety. Today, you'd never know I was the shy guy who hardly spoke in class. I give more than 50 talks a year, and I feel totally comfortable. It doesn't phase me anymore. My advice to you is to just do it. No matter how awkward and horrible you feel, you'll eventually get over it. In addition to stepping out of your comfort zone, try what's called deliberate practice, where you analyze everything about your performance and modify your speaking style to see what works best. Try experimenting with different techniques. Watch videos of speakers whom you admire and note what they do right. Ask for feedback from the audience and people you trust. You can even join a speaker's club like Toastmasters or hire a professional coach. I never did this, but I know it can help. Let me share some of the things I learned along the way. Less is more. Keep your talk short. Keep your points concise. Don't just blab away. Don't waste people's time. It's not about you. It's about them. Practice and forget. The way to deliver a flawless pitch is to practice, 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 and then, when you get on stage, forget everything. Speak from your heart. Don't try to regurgitate memorized lines. That always comes out stale. Just say whatever pops into your head. You know your business. You know exactly what your company does. Feel free to go off script. Just keep it real and fresh. Go wireless. Whenever possible, Free up your hands by using a lavalier microphone. This allows you to use your body language. It's also more natural. If you can't get a lavalier, at least procure a wireless handheld microphone. Use body language. Video yourself giving your pitch. Examine your posture. Are you standing up erect or are you hunched over? Where are your hands? Don't be afraid to move. Be expressive. If you study the great speakers, they use their body to enhance their delivery. Avoid podiums. Even if there's a podium, you don't have to use it. A podium gets between you and the audience. It's better not to have anything separating you from whomever you're speaking to. Make an entrance. Pay special attention to how you walk on stage. This sets the tone. Walk briskly. Take center stage. Pause for a moment to capture the audience's attention and then start speaking. Vary the pitch and tempo. Nothing is worse than a monotone speaker. When you're giving a speech, mix it up. Slow down to emphasize key points. Raise your voice when you're excited. Lower your voice when delivering an authoritative message. Pause for effect. The silences are as important as your words. The pauses allow you to emphasize specific points. When you pause, you capture the audience's attention. They zero in on you. The longer the silence the more the anticipation builds. Try it. You'll see the power of the pause. Compose a symphony. Think of your talk as a symphony where you are the composer. Great symphonies rise and fall, speed up and slow down, always building toward a crescendo. They have a clear structure. Listen to Beethoven, Bach, and Mozart and pay attention to how they constructed their masterpieces. Let them inspire you. Surprise your audience. Don't be afraid to do something out of the ordinary, even bizarre. Maybe show an unexpected video, tell a funny story, or reveal an interesting prop. Do whatever it takes to get the audience's attention and wake them up. Just don't be boring. Make a single point. When using PowerPoint, every slide should make a single point. Don't try to cram three points onto one slide. It will just confuse your audience. The six-word rule. Never fill your PowerPoint slides full of text. I have a rule. No more than six words per slide. That should be your goal. The audience should be able to read the slide in a few seconds. If not, they're going to miss what you say and become frustrated. This is because people don't multitask well. They have trouble reading something on a screen and listening to a speaker at the same time. If you want them to hear you, the fewer words you have on screen, the better. Make it visual. Fill your PowerPoint with stunning photographs and imagery that reinforce your main points. Get creative with illustrations, animations, videos, and 3D models. The more compelling you can make your visuals, the more the audience will remember what you say. People forget most of what they hear, but not what they see. Retention goes way up when audio is tied to visuals. Know your audience. Understand whom you were talking to. What is their background? Why are they attending your talk? What do they want to get out of it? The more information you can gather in advance, the better you can prepare. Quality Content Focus on providing high-quality, actionable information and ideas. Don't focus on selling something. Most people don't want to be sold anything and don't care about what you're doing. They care about what they are doing, and they want information that can help them. So, concentrate your talk on helping them solve their problems. Be bold. Don't be timid. Speak in a strong, clear voice. Attempt to exude confidence, even if you don't have any. Don't shout. Being overly forceful doesn't work. This is also something I need to work on. Passion has its limits. It's better to talk in a tempered, even voice. If you are passionate, your passion will show through, but in a more natural way. You don't want to overdo it. Speak slowly. Don't talk too fast. People won't be able to understand you, especially if the audio system isn't up to par or you have a foreign accent. Make eye contact. Connect with your audience. Make eye contact with at least one person. Find an attractive listener and speak to that individual. Each new, positive reaction you receive will imbue you with more energy. Ignore those people who are on their phones. They don't count. Take mental notes. Study the audience as you speak. They are your real-time feedback mechanism. See what parts of your talk they respond to and where they seem confused or bored. Make mental notes so you can improve your speech the next time. Always be iterating. Creating a talk isn't a one-shot deal. It's an iterative process. I never give exactly the same speech twice. I'm always working to improve. After each talk, I edit my slides, change the wording, cut things that don't resonate, and add new, fresh material. You should do the same. Never stop experimenting. Try different things during every talk. Don't be afraid to mess up or go too far. In fact, you should push your boundaries. Crack some jokes and see how it works. Act playful or try being dead serious. Experiment with different techniques and content. The more variations you try out, the better and more original your talks will become. 75. Marketing and Customer Acquisition Scaling a business usually comes down to marketing and customer acquisition. The mistake a lot of startups make is that they simply don't try enough different channels to acquire customers, and that winds up limiting them. It's not enough to test one or two channels. A startup should be assessing at least one new channel every month. This is because the ground is constantly shifting. There are literally thousands of ways to acquire customers, and finding the best ones ahead of your competitors can make all the difference. If you can be the first to figure them out and exploit them, you'll have a significant advantage. Make sure these basic marketing and customer acquisition strategies are on your hit list. Search engine optimization, search engine marketing, click-through marketing, hyper-local marketing, inbound marketing, social marketing, content marketing. Guest posts, public relations, guerrilla marketing, video ads, display ads, email lists, retargeting, strategic marketing, affiliate programs, cold calling, customer service as marketing, viral marketing, launching on new platforms, trade shows and conferences, private events, public speaking, cross promotions, traditional advertising. In order to test various marketing channels, you first need to calculate the average lifetime value of your customers and make sure it's significantly more than the average customer acquisition costs plus cost of goods. If the math adds up, you're in business. The greater the margins, the better the marketing channel. Your goal should be to try as many channels as possible as quickly as possible to see which ones yield the best results. You'll find that some channels are excellent when your marketing budgets are small, but they don't scale well as your budgets increase. Over time, channels that are effective will change. Some will tap out. Others will become too competitive. This is why you constantly need to be experimenting. Marketing is an ongoing process of discovery. It's not set and forget. For these reasons, it's important to build a strong internal marketing team. You can't simply outsource it. You need the knowledge inside your organization so you have an edge over your competition. That doesn't mean you shouldn't get outside help. You should always bring on fresh consultants and integrate them with your team for limited periods of time so your team can learn from them. If you do this, you can stay one step ahead of your competitors and gain a significant marketing advantage. 76. Designing Your Workspace Along with growth comes new offices. Silicon Valley startups have a tradition of spending their venture capital on uniquely creative spaces. These workspaces are designed to not only look hip and make an impression, but they often rely on extensive research in the areas of neuroscience, sociology, and human behavior. The goal is to enhance collaboration, communication, and creativity. Through tests, we can understand the consequences of a particular design on the workers who are operating within it, says Andrew Human, a designer at NBBJ, the architectural firm that designed headquarters for Amazon, Google, and Samsung. For instance, how far you sit from someone determines the likelihood that you will interact with that person. Simply glancing at a co-worker during the course of a day dramatically increases the probability you will engage with them. There's a lot of research coming out that higher ceilings promote higher performance in conceptual thinking, while lower ceilings are better for mathematical thinking, adds Scott Wyatt, a managing partner at NBBJ. Sound also plays an essential role in productivity. A little noise actually helps. Libraries tend to be too quiet. Studies have found that 70 decibels of background noise are optimal for most people. It's enough input to boost creative energy, but not so much that it disrupts concentration. There's almost no element in a space that doesn't have some impact on how well your employees will perform. For example, warm light decreases stress levels and enhances cognitive performance. Another study found that by swapping smaller tables for larger ones in the cafeteria, employees were 36% more likely to interact with one another back in the office. Cornerstone and Harvard Business School found that if employees sit next to the right people, their productivity can go up 15 percent. Pairing people with opposite strengths works best. They wind up collaborating and complementing one another. On the other hand, sitting next to a toxic worker who has a negative attitude significantly lowers productivity and increases the likelihood the employee won't remain in the company. Steve Jobs was obsessed with office design, He took an active role in redesigning Pixar's offices. He wanted to make sure that executives and editors shared the same buildings. He didn't want them separated. He even tried to limit the number of bathrooms so that employees from all across the company would randomly bump into one another throughout the day. Studies have shown that serendipitous encounters at work equate to increased idea sharing and cooperation. If you look at Apple's headquarters, you can see that Jobs designed it as a giant donut in order to create a flow where workers are forced to walk through one another's spaces on their way to and from meetings. The donut also allows for an open green space in the middle where workers can relax, have lunch, bump into one another, and hold activities. Jobs cared deeply about the flow of workers within the space because he understood that the more connections people make in any given day – The more information and knowledge are exchanged. A company can be viewed as a living organism where everyone is part of one giant brain. The more neural connections, the more creative and productive it becomes. This is the reason most startups in Silicon Valley have open space for employees to mingle. They want their employees to have casual exchanges throughout the day. It's a different dynamic than being in a meeting or walking up to someone's desk. When people are hanging out, they're more likely to talk about what they're doing in an open, relaxed manner. This can lead to information being exchanged that otherwise wouldn't be communicated. It also catalyzes new collaborations and friendships. For the same reason, many tech companies have eliminated cubicles in favor of open seating. They want everyone to work together and make eye contact throughout the day. They don't want physical barriers separating them. Some offices have gone as far as forcing employees to change seating throughout the week, so they wind up sitting next to different people in the organization almost every single day. The underlying hypothesis is that an organization will become smarter and more innovative with each new interaction. The same thinking has inspired companies to create play areas, complete with the mandatory ping pong and foosball tables. Nothing beats games for encouraging teamwork and bonding. Some startups have even installed miniature golf courses, massage chairs, and video arcades. These may seem frivolous, but they are intended to get employees to open up with one another and form relationships that go beyond work. It's this type of closeness that enables teams to come together and accomplish far more than the sum of their parts. All this openness is good for collaboration, but it can take its toll on concentration. As three executives from Steelcase, the furniture maker, wrote in Harvard Business Review, People feel a pressing need for more privacy, not only to do heads-down work, but to cope with the intensity of how work happens today. According to their research, there has been a 16% increase in the number of people who can't concentrate at their desks. This is the reason many startups are creating quiet zones. They want a safe place for employees to go when they need to think without being disturbed. But quiet spaces alone may not be enough. Around 70% of U.S. offices have low or no partitions. Some experts now believe that the shift to open office design was a big mistake. A survey by enterprise software strategist William Belk found that 58% of high-performance employees need more private spaces for problem-solving. Psychologist Nick Perham found that office noise impairs workers' ability to recall information and do tasks as simple as basic arithmetic. In addition, the lack of privacy and constant interruptions can create significant stress, impairing workers' productivity and leading to health issues. In Silicon Valley, this has led to a backlash from employees and a raging debate among experts. A less controversial trend in Silicon Valley is bringing the outdoors inside, For the majority of human existence, people have worked outdoors, so it's not natural to spend nearly all our waking hours cooped up inside a building. This is why designers are working to mimic outdoor environments inside the office. They are adding plenty of open space, large windows, natural lighting, and greenery. They're even pumping in fresh air and using earth tones for the walls and furniture. Some companies are painting the ceilings blue because blue suppresses melatonin. The chemical that makes people feel tired. If a person looks up and sees blue, the brain tells them it's daytime, even if it isn't. I'm just scratching the surface of the science behind designing workspaces, but as you scale up your business, I hope this inspires you to think more creatively about your office and how it will affect your employees' performance and overall quality of work and life. 77. Watch out for the platforms. Many startups choose to launch their products or services on one of the major platforms like Amazon, Alibaba, Salesforce, Microsoft, Facebook, or WeChat. This is because the advantages are numerous. These startups can leverage a mature infrastructure, brand, user base, and ecosystem to build their businesses. All of these combined can accelerate growth far beyond what startups can do independently, especially if the company is fulfilling a strong unmet need on the platform. The problem comes when the startup grows large enough to get on the radar of the big boys. With their God's eye view of everything that goes on under their domain, they can quickly spot what's working and how valuable it is to their users. This can create a conflict of interest. While they are happy to have other startups innovating inside their ecosystems, they also want to control the most essential and lucrative parts, maximizing both the value they provide to their users and their own profits. This means if the product or service is deemed strategic enough, the platforms will either opt to purchase the startup or copy it. If the acquisition offer is good, this shouldn't be a problem for the entrepreneur. However, if big guys lowball the startup or simply roll out their own version, that leaves the entrepreneur in a tough spot. It's almost impossible to compete head-on with bigger players on their home turf. They have enormous advantages. They can fully integrate any product or service into their platform in a way no third party can match. They have the implicit trust of their users and can reach out to them at virtually no cost. Let's face it. When your competitor owns the platform on which you're competing, the playing field is tilted so far against you that it's almost impossible to win. So what should an entrepreneur do? Avoid using anyone else's platform? Unfortunately, it's not that easy. Today's digital world is made up of these platforms. It's often impracticable to avoid using them and still remain competitive. Few, if any, startups are in a position to build their own social network equivalent to Facebook, e-commerce portal on par with Amazon, or CRM platform as robust as Salesforce. It's simply not realistic, and many of the best business opportunities depend upon platforms like these to succeed. Just to give you an idea of the magnitude of these platforms, according to Pivotal Research, 84% of global digital ad spending outside China went through just two companies, Facebook and Google. Amazon now accounts for nearly half of all online product searches and e-commerce revenue in the United States. Salesforce is the market leader in the CRM, with revenues of more than $10 billion for the fiscal year ending in January 2018. That's an increase of 25% year over year. When most of the action is on the big platforms, it's no wonder so many startups choose to build their businesses on top of them, even knowing that all data associated with these services goes directly into the hands of a potential competitor. Unfortunately, the risks to startups are significant. ProPublica investigated Amazon back in 2016 and found that its search algorithm often steers users away from bargains in favor of Amazon's white label offerings. This hurts the merchants on Amazon's platform. Google saw how successful Yelp had become and now competes directly with it, featuring Google's own reviews in Google Search. By favoring its own content, Google is steadily eating away at Yelp's business. This is just one example of a more pervasive problem. In fact, the European Union fined Google $5 billion for alleged anti-competitive behavior. And if you think it's tough in the United States... It's no better in China, with Alibaba, Tencent, and Baidu dominating the markets in similar ways. Globally, the big are getting bigger. Economists like Marshall Steinbaum of the Roosevelt Institute argue that these companies act as monopolies, stifling competition and suppressing the growth of startups. Facebook, Google, Apple, and Amazon are are developing a concentration of power that fosters the premature death of big companies and infanticide for small firms, says Scott Galloway, a professor at New York University's Stern School of Business and author of The Four. A press release with Amazon on it has the power to bring down the value of an entire industry within hours. Steinbaum claims these quasi-monopolies are a cause of the recent slowdown in startup creation in America. Facebook can see which startups are gaining traction and buy them out, as it did with Instagram and WhatsApp. If they don't sell, Facebook will simply steal their best ideas as it did with Snapchat. Apple has denied updates to apps it doesn't like, such as Spotify. According to Ariel Israchi and Maurice Stuckey, authors of Virtual Competition, the big guys put up a pretense of competition and tout free markets while acting to consolidate their monopolies. Amazon, Google, Facebook and Apple, have aggregated more economic value and influence than nearly any other commercial entity in history, claims Galloway. Together, they have a larger value than the gross domestic product of many countries, including France. They create relatively few jobs for their size, pay minimal taxes thanks to clever accounting, and are laser-focused on squashing any serious competition. Think about it. If one of the big boys approaches a startup with an offer to buy them or crush them, what do you imagine the startup will choose? This results in earlier exits at lower valuations, which makes it harder for investors to get the returns they need to continue supporting new startups. This, however, doesn't mean startups can't survive in a world ruled by giants. Plenty still succeed by carving out niches between the titans. They can also gain an edge by using new technologies that create value beyond the platforms. With each wave of emerging technologies, there are opportunities to create new economies and build the next generation of platforms. Amazon, Google, Facebook, and Apple aren't the final embodiment of e-commerce, advertising, search, social networking, and operating systems. There will be future innovations that take us far beyond what we can imagine today. Using cutting-edge technologies like augmented reality, artificial intelligence, quantum computing, and brain-to-computer interfaces, companies will redefine how we interact, shop, and access information. All it takes is for one of the big guys to miss a beat, while a startup lands there first and grows fast enough to build a defensible platform of its own. As we've seen in the past, the network effect is extremely powerful, Google, with all its users, data, and talent, couldn't compete with the upstart Facebook. Even though Google built a sophisticated social network of its own, forced millions of users to sign up, and orchestrated a wave of positive publicity, it failed to take off. No one cared. No one wanted it. Facebook was already there and had an iron grip on the users. Remember when Sun Microsystems, Nokia, IBM, and Microsoft seemed to dominate the tech landscape? only Microsoft is still a contender. Sun Microsystems became irrelevant, and Oracle gobbled up its remains. Nokia lost the smartphone wars. IBM gave up on hardware, then pivoted to services, and is once again struggling to redefine itself. Its latest incarnation is as an artificial intelligence platform, but that has yet to prove itself. None of these former Goliaths was able to anticipate and thwart the rise of Google, Facebook, amazon and apple so why should we expect this generation of giants to be any different i remember when everyone was saying nobody could compete with microsoft because it controlled more than 90 percent of the market share for pc operating systems they could just add a feature or bundle their own version with windows and put most software companies out of business lo and behold pcs aren't as important as they used to be Mobile is in the ascendance, and Microsoft lost out to iOS and Android. So don't give up hope. You can still win at this game. It's always been tough for startups. It doesn't matter how far back you go in time. The little guys have forever been scrambling to outsmart and outmaneuver the titans without getting the life crushed out of them. In the same way that a few college kids gave birth to Microsoft, Facebook, and Google, so too will the next generation of giants be born. And if history is any guide, today's giants will become tomorrow's dinosaurs. 78. The Unfair Advantages Winning business isn't about being fair. In fact, it's the opposite. Companies win precisely because they have an unfair advantage over their competitors. It's impossible to command high profit margins and dominate a market if your company is just like everyone else. I've outlined various ways companies put up barriers to protect their businesses, block competitors, and control markets. Network effect. This is when the value of a product or service increases according to the number of people, companies, or other entities using it. Just look at social networks like Facebook, Snapchat, and WeChat. Their primary value is predicated on the number of people using their networks. Even if users want to switch, It's almost impossible to get all their friends to move to a new service at the same time, thus creating an enormous barrier for competitors. Access to Data Data is the real estate of the future, and there's a massive land grab going on. Everyone wants to own the most valuable data. If a company like Amazon can generate proprietary data and use it to offer superior products and services, it has a significant competitive advantage. Proprietary user data plays a crucial role in making Facebook and Google the largest and most profitable ad networks in the world today. Capital Simply having more money than competitors can give a company a tremendous unfair advantage. Look at the unicorns that raise hundreds of millions of dollars and then use their huge war chests to acquire customers, lower prices, and drive smaller competitors out of business. Technology if a company's products are only incrementally better than everyone else's, competitors can easily compete on price and features. However, if a company's products are 2, 3, or 4 times better than competitors, it can dominate the market. This usually happens through developing new and superior technologies that competitors don't have access to. NVIDIA is a great example of this, with its hefty R&D Research and development budget And substantial lead in developing the world's best graphics processing technologies Provide most value Companies like Amazon excel at providing the most value to their customers Amazon is always thinking of how to give its Prime members more than other e-commerce sites Including free shipping, faster delivery, lower prices, music, videos, e-books, and more Lock-in customers Oracle is a master at locking in customers. Their software requires such a deep level of integration that once a company adopts it, the switching costs become so high that competitors with lower prices or even free services still have trouble stealing customers away. Marketplace Companies like eBay have shown the power of a marketplace. If a startup can be the first to attract a critical mass of buyers and sellers, it wins. Buyers will always choose the market with the most sellers because this guarantees the lowest prices and greatest choice. Sellers will always follow the buyers. Once a company captures both, it becomes extremely hard for anyone else to replicate. Define a product category. It's not enough to be part of a product category. The most successful companies own the category. That means their products become synonymous with the categories themselves. Take Kleenex. It became so popular that people still say, Pass me a Kleenex, instead of, pass me a facial tissue. Apple did the same thing with MP3 music players. We still call it podcasting, because the iPod ate the category. Likewise, Google-dominated search to such an extent, we still say, let's Google it. Industry Standard Simply becoming an industry standard, like Microsoft Windows, can keep out competitors. Once everyone is using a piece of software, the value of that software goes up. Many companies have tried to launch new operating systems, and most of them have failed miserably. Microsoft counts on this, and that's why in third world countries, it has allowed people to easily copy Windows for years. Microsoft said it was illegal, but did nothing to prevent people from making those copies because it knew that becoming an industry standard was more important than short-term profits. Economies of scale. The larger a company gets, the more it can take advantage of economies of scale by optimizing everything from manufacturing to supply chains and distribution. Just look at Walmart and how it can drive smaller stores out of business. Monopoly. We all know the power of a monopoly. The standard oil trust is infamous. It had such a stranglehold on everything from the transportation to drilling and refining of oil that no one else could compete, When they moved into a new market, they could literally afford to keep dropping the price until their competitors went out of business. In the end, it was only the U.S. government that curtailed their dominance, breaking up the company through antitrust legislation. Patents One of the strongest barriers to entry, especially as a company scales up and dominates a market, is its patents. There are constant patent wars between the big guys like Apple, Samsung, Microsoft, Amazon, and Qualcomm. Every major company relies on patents to fend off and hobble its competitors. Relationships Having relationships with key strategic partners and government officials can give a company a huge competitive advantage. Just look at how much Big Pharma spends on relationship building each year. Not only do they put money in the pockets of politicians, but they also spend enormous amounts of time, resources, and money nurturing relationships with doctors and hospital administrators. TAP A TREND When a company becomes synonymous with an emerging trend, it can ride the wave all the way to the bank. Just look at Lululemon, which built a clothing empire on the back of the yoga craze, or Blue Bottle Coffee, which rode the gourmet coffee trend all the way to a $500 million exit. GOVERNMENT POLICY If a business is closely aligned with government policy, it can use this to fend off the competition. Just look at Baidu versus Google in China. Baidu played by the Chinese government's rules and used them to its advantage. Google didn't and got kicked out. Speed to Market If a company is the first to market with new technologies, superior products, or lower prices, it can keep its competitors off-balance. Fast movers are the first ones to cut prices, upgrade services, release new models, and employ the latest technologies. By always keeping one step ahead of the competition, they dominate their markets— A great example of this is Samsung Electronics. They are continually pushing to be first with the latest tech. This is part of their core strategy for fending off lower-priced competitors. Brand Having the best recognized brand in a market can make all the difference. People buy what they know. If they're in a drugstore or supermarket, they're going to feel more comfortable buying from a brand they've seen before rather than a no-name competitor. This is true across all product categories. Once a company has built a dominant brand, it's hard for others to compete on an equal footing. Media Attention Getting press is a significant unfair advantage. If a company is always in the media, it's what people think of. Everything on the web is only one click away, from productivity apps to shaving cream. Whatever name pops into people's heads first is what they type. Amazon may or may not have the lowest prices and best service, but we hear its name so often in the press that it feels like the natural choice for shopping. Amazon Prime Day has even become a special event, equivalent to a summertime Black Friday, thanks in large part to media attention. Celebrity Endorsements Because celebrities have name recognition and fans, a single endorsement can work wonders. Just look at how Nike dominates its market— by obtaining exclusive endorsements from top athletes around the world. Domain Expertise Companies that refine a complex process and accumulate more knowledge and expertise about their industry than anyone else can consistently outperform the competition. Just look at how long Intel has maintained its lead in the fiercely competitive world of semiconductors. Trade Secrets Coca-Cola has put up barriers around its business for more than 120 years by keeping its formula secret. What competitors don't know, they cannot copy. Exit Traps Many companies have kept customers locked in by lowering costs up front while charging sizable fees if a customer chooses to leave. Verizon and AT&T did this for years with their cell phone businesses. They offered steep discounts on phones if customers agreed to sign multi-year service contracts. The longer the contracts, the higher the barriers. Partnerships Having exclusive deals with key partners can block competitors out of key distribution channels. As I write this book, Netflix is offering its video entertainment services bundled with T-Mobile's phone service. In other words, T-Mobile customers get Netflix for free, making it harder to justify signing up and paying for Hulu, Comcast, HBO, or any other competitor. Proprietary Consumables If a company makes both the product and the consumables, it can increase profit margins and outspend the competition on marketing. Just look at Gillette's Razors, HP's Printers, and Keurig's Coffee Makers the majority of consumers will opt for the default, which is to buy consumables that come from the product manufacturer, thereby locking competitors out of the most lucrative part of the market. Learning curve. Some products take a long time to learn, and once people are trained, they don't want to switch. Adobe has made a fortune selling software targeted at graphic artists, video editors, and other creatives. Customers have to invest their time to learn how to use these sophisticated products, and once they do, they are reluctant to switch to a competing solution. Servitization Companies like Rolls-Royce have transformed the jet engine business into a service, which makes it virtually impossible for competitors to get off the ground. Instead of charging outright for a jet engine, which isn't cheap— They offer it to airlines as part of a service package that includes maintenance and a business model where airlines pay by usage. This allows airlines to better control costs, while Rolls-Royce makes it difficult for competitors to break into the market. It's simply too expensive to replicate this model because of the combination of high upfront costs and long-term service contracts. Ecosystems and Platforms Building an ecosystem is one of the best ways to win. This is often called a platform play. It's when a company creates value by bringing third parties onto their platform to offer an array of additional products and services. Salesforce is a perfect example. It is no longer the best CRM solution. It's expensive, difficult to learn, and hard to implement. But it has a robust ecosystem that no one can match. There are thousands of developers on their platform offering all types of additional products and services that can enhance the value making it hard to beat and even harder to leave. WeChat is another super ecosystem, complete with everything from voice and messaging to payments, marketing, mini-programs, and developer accounts. Every entrepreneur needs to work toward obtaining as many unfair advantages as possible. If your startup doesn't have at least a couple of these, you'll have a tough time building a billion-dollar business. 79. Planning Your Exit Many entrepreneurs believe they need to have an exit strategy. They think it's smart to plan the exit from the beginning. This is fine, but don't spend too much time worrying about this early on. Most startups change direction at least once in their first year, so spending a lot of time planning for an exit before achieving a solid product-market fit doesn't make sense. Whatever your idea is when you launch your company, it's probably not what you'll wind up doing. In addition, before you launch your product, it's difficult to know all the players in your industry and understand why they may want to purchase your business. This is something best learned along the way. Only by running your business and understanding the ecosystem can you best figure out who are the most suitable acquirers, what they have to offer you, and what you can offer them. I personally like to work with entrepreneurs who are passionate about building world-changing companies that will last far beyond their tenure as CEO. When they think of an exit strategy, it's a long-term view. To them, an acquisition or IPO is simply a byproduct of their efforts, not the end goal. I found that those entrepreneurs who are simply focused on flipping their companies to the highest bidder at the earliest possible moment don't perform as well. They usually have a quick money mentality. They're looking to cut corners. They tend to ignore their customers, build cheaper products, and prioritize short-term gains over long-term growth. All of this means that if an acquisition doesn't materialize, they aren't in a position to compete and win. They'll just become one of many opportunists who miss the boat. Another red flag is founders who begin scrambling to find an acquirer after their company hits a rough patch. Instead of dealing with the problems, they're looking for a way out. This happens all too often in Silicon Valley. When a startup begins shopping itself around, everyone begins to wonder why. What's wrong with this company? Are they about to go under? Is there a lawsuit? No successful entrepreneur wants to sell a winner that hasn't achieved its full growth potential. That's why the top companies sell at unicorn-like valuations. They're not looking for buyers, and will only exit if the offer is too good to refuse. Most people hear about the mega-exits— they get all the press, while the smaller ones go virtually unnoticed. However, companies get bought for many reasons, and the outcome for the founders and investors can vary dramatically. Here are four types of low-value exits that happen all too often in Silicon Valley. 1. Aqua hires. The startup is purchased for its team, not its technology, market share, growth potential, technology, or brand. Often, it's big companies like Google, Facebook, Amazon, and Microsoft that will buy these startups because they want the talent. Typically, they shut down the products and services upon acquisition and integrate the team into their current initiatives. The valuations for aqua hires tend to be sub-$20 million. 2. Fire Sales The startup is bought for rock-bottom prices because it's going out of business. Many times, the acquisition is predicated on grabbing the company's domain name, user data, software platform, or other assets. 3. Zombie Disposals The startup is sold or merged with another company simply to remove it from a venture fund's portfolio. Every fund has a lifespan, usually ranging from 6 to 12 years, and if the startup isn't able to exit, it needs to be liquidated. However, some startups refuse to die, and these are called zombies— They continue limping along without any growth potential. If a startup won't go away, it's often folded into one of the fund's more successful ventures or sold off to a suitable company that has a relationship with the VCs. 4. Tech Acquisitions The startup is purchased for its technology. Depending on the tech, the acquisition values range from very low to extremely high. There are no rules here. It all comes down to the patents and strategic importance of the technology to the acquirer. The startups that command top valuations tend to be those that have assumed a leadership position in their market and are poised for hyper-growth. This is why I tell founders not to worry about selling their companies. Worry about building an amazing business and buyers will come chasing after you. That said, if you enjoy thinking about your exit, it can't hurt to plan ahead. I know many successful entrepreneurs who put together an exit plan early on while still maintaining a long-term view. Here are some practical things you should consider. Make sure you have the right legal structure. In the United States, it's usually a Delaware C corporation, but it could also be an S corporation. If you're in China or some other country, you need to consider whether you plan to IPO inside your home country or on the New York Stock Exchange nasdaq or some other exchange decisions you make early on can have a big impact down the road form strategic partnerships with the top companies in your industry by collaborating with the bigger players and demonstrating your value you will be on their radar stay visible if you are present at industry trade shows have solid pr and get plenty of attention your chances of finding a suitor will rise. The more of an impact you can make in your particular industry, the higher your odds. Leverage your investors and advisors. Tap them for introductions to possible acquirers. Ask them to help facilitate any deals. Build personal relationships with key decision makers in your ecosystem. Knowing someone makes an enormous difference. Acquisition talks often begin simply because two people genuinely like each other and want to work more closely together. As you grow your business, also develop your patent portfolio. It never hurts to have strong intellectual property. Treat your employees well. If acquirers are smart, they will talk to your employees as part of the due diligence process. If your employees badmouth the company, it can kill the deal. Keep your finances in order. Sloppy bookkeeping, accounting discrepancies, and financial problems can hamper the process. Act with integrity. Everyone talks to everyone, and your reputation matters. Last, you can try to hire an investment banker to shop your company around, but this gets expensive fast, and there's no guarantee of success. This works best for large companies with predictable revenues. It doesn't work as well for early and mid-stage startups.